So, uh, my name is Mark Philp. Uh, I teach political theory uh, at Oriel College uh, and a member of the Department of Politics and International Relations. Uh, and I'm primarily here just to introduce Mark. Um, I think there's some echo, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is that better? Yeah. It's difficult to tell when I stop speaking. I think that's fine. Okay, so this session is on academics and politics, going into politics. Um, it's primarily, uh, I'm going to hand over to Mark Steers, who's the university lecturer at uh, University College. Uh, his most recent book is Dem uh, Demanding Democracy, American Radicals in Search of a New Politics, published by Princeton in 2010. Um, he's a very active member of the department, uh, or he was until we allowed him not to. Uh, he's now uh, at the end of his first year at the IPPR, Institute of Public Policy Research, uh, which really means that he's spent the last year and will spend the next two years as a close advisor to Ed Miliband, who incidentally I taught when he was a nipper. Um, so Mark's going to tell us a bit about some of the tensions of going into politics from an academic perspective. Actually, the topic is a pretty old one. Uh, if, even if it's pretty recurrent. One of the earliest examples is to be found in Plato's seventh letter, which describes how Plato, at the age of 40, went to Syracuse to work with Dion and Dionysius. He says, when I was a young man, and this, actually, this, this whole session is a bit like old, boring academic versus young, but sort of, you know, uh, active academic. This passage particularly, I think, captures this. It says, when I was a young man, I had the same ambition as many others. I thought of entering public life as soon as I came of age. First, he did enter public life, first under the 30 tyrants. It's not such a good time to, to do it. But when they tried to make Socrates uh, a party to direct the arrest and the illegal execution of somebody, Socrates refused and Plato also was so appalled that he drew back from that reign and injustice. Then he went on to say, goes on to say, the more I reflected upon what was happening, upon what kind of men were active in politics and upon the state of our laws and customs, and the older I grew, the more I realized how difficult it is to manage a city's affairs rightly. At last I came to the conclusion that all existing states are badly governed and the condition of their laws practically incurable without some miraculous remedy and the assistance of fortune. And I was forced to say, in praise of true philosophy, that from her height alone was it possible to discern what the nature of justice is, either in the state or in the individual, and that the ills of the human race would never end until those who are sincerely and truly lovers of wisdom came into political power, or the rulers of our cities, by the grace of God, learned true philosophy. Plato goes on to describe his relations with Dion and Dionysius of Syracuse, the upshot of which is that he had a rather difficult time. doesn't say so in the seventh letter, but the historical record suggests that he ended up being sold to pirates and had to be ransomed by his friends back in Athens. Um, as a result of these experiences, according to the seventh principle, he, uh, the seventh letter, he says he had a break to set the following principle, which a wise man must follow in his relations to his own city. Let him warn her if he thinks her constitution is corrupt and there is a prospect that his words will be listened to and not put him in danger of his life. Let him not use violence against his fatherland to bring about a change of constitution. 
If what he thinks is best and can only be accomplished by violence, let him keep his peace and pray for the welfare of himself and his city. Now, there's some technical complications here. Plato's seventh letter may not actually be by Plato. Uh, but the evidence uh, of a progression from, uh, in Plato's thought, uh, partly from the Republic through the statesmen to the laws, suggests that he became more and more pessimistic about knowledge being able to inform politics. In the Gorgias, which appears just before the Republic, he gets Socrates to differentiate the true political craft from the way in which politics is actually done. Socrates says, the speeches I make do not aim at gratification, but at what's best. They don't aim at what is most pleasant. The place of democratic institutions are inevitably turned towards gratifying the people, rather than giving them the things that would be good for them. And he cites the example of a doctor being judged in a court case brought by a pastry chef, chef uh, and being judged by children. Uh, so, that's the, the political analog. Uh, the doctor makes them take medicines, he cauterizes their wounds, he you know, cuts them when he needs to, and so on and so forth. The pastry chef fills them with sweets and kind of pastries and so on. Uh, and it's not difficult to see, he says, which way the, the children are going to judge. Um, and that underlies his conception that democratic politics seems to be about opinion and appetite, and that anyone who doesn't stoop to gratify these gods will be cast aside. So Thomas More thought very highly of Plato and proved singularly inept at avoiding conflict with his king to his cost. And the examples can just be multiplied. One thinks of Condorcet putting the finishing touches to his Achilles, which was a, one of the most optimistic statements of kind of the Enlightenment. Um, and he put the finishing touches to it shortly before committing suicide in order to avoid Robespierre's uh, revolutionary terror. Or one thinks of Bakurin, Bakarin's last letter to Stalin, where he says, look, I just think you ought to know I really am innocent, though I do know that it wouldn't be politically, you know, uh, it would be politically dangerous for, for us to confess that we know that I'm innocent, therefore I'm prepared to plead guilty. You kind of think, something's, something bad has happened. I don't say these things to put the fear of God into Mark. <laughs> So much as to draw attention to a fundamental tension between the life of mind and of politics, one orientated to truth, the other to power. I say to power because so much of politics is concerned with how to gain it and retain it, at times with increasing indifference to what it is that power should be used for. But that simply confirms some general truths, that means tend to become ends, that measures necessary to achieve an end may disable somebody from pursuing it, winning somebody's support, for example, to secure power may allow them to block the things that you want to achieve. Or using certain means to power may corrupt the agent, vitiating the intention with respect to procedures and law and in office. Now one problem with Plato's picture is that truth and knowledge are within our grasp. He assumes that, and it's only in the world of politics that, it's, uh, that things are flawed. That conception, I think, is, or confidence is less widely shared. We don't think that academics is just like politics, um, just concerned with gratifying people in the pursuit of interests and opinions, but we do think that it's less, uh, uh, that we have less confidence in the, the grasp on truth uh, than perhaps Plato did. More specifically, we don't think that political theory and our understanding of politics is just a matter of opinion. We think 
It ought to be able to identify certain truths and principles that should constrain and guide our options rather than merely serve them. And we do think, as political theorists, that we've got something to say to politicians, um, and more generally as academics. I mean, if you take something fairly straightforward like climate change, we can say with some certainty what kinds of problems will arise from rising sea levels, temperature levels, and so on, and how we need to prepare in order to be able to adapt to those kinds of challenges, and what we might need to do to moderate those developments. But there remains a fundamental political problem of how we get politicians and the public at large to share those concerns and the costs of having those concerns uh, so as to constrain elements of the global economy. So before Mark uh, allies and lays our fears about practicing political theory in politics, let me identify quickly several enduring problems in connection to the study of politics, uh, connecting the study of politics to the world of practice. I'm going to do so with reference to five of what are called the seven principles of public life which are the principles that the Nolan Committee set out following the uh, first set of scandals in John Major's government. Um, I run a research advisory board uh, for the uh, Committee on Standards in Public Life, which is a kind of niche location between being an academic and having some contact with the kind of political world. Uh, but let me just talk about five brief principles. Firstly, honesty is a central kind of principle of political Academics retain a belief in the importance of saying what they think is true. Well, I suspect they need to do it less than they used to. Politicians have to add a level of reflection to what they say. They have to ask themselves how far what they say will work in the context in which they're speaking or acting. This is not to say that rhetoric has no place in the academy. We've been studying it for centuries and using it for more or less as long. But our own sense of our endeavour invites us constantly to distinguish between the truths that we pursue and what others can be brought to believe. Moreover, academia is dominated by an orientation to truth and warranted belief. It aims to provide an environment in which politics can reflect and study with insulation from matters of what it's prudent to say rather than what it's true to say. Politics is not so fortunate. The second principle is openness. Academics should be people who think out loud in lectures, books, journals, and so on. Clearly, while they, they should be attentive to the work of others in their chosen field, but they shouldn't be driven by what they think people want, want to hear. Moreover, as academics, we should be sharing our workings. There's being open about the kinds of reasoning that we're engaged in, being clear about the kinds of methods that we use to derive certain conclusions justifying the way we put on one set of sources rather than another set of sources. In politics, as Senator McCarthy, and more recently the dodgy dossier suggests, facts are to be exploited, not justified and assessed, and few politicians have to substantiate their claims in detail. And when they do, as in the Iraq inquiry, it's often several years after. And that doesn't, the fact that it's so long afterwards doesn't change the short-term incentives to wheel and deal, to rely on prejudice and populist cliches, rather than to deal with the facts. And if we want a single example of that, it seems to me the catastrophic level of intervention in children's education over the last 30 years, in which educational research has been largely ignored and educational policy has been driven by strongly ideological functions is a perfect 
third principle is about objectivity. The point of objectivity in the seven principles is to affirm the principle of allocation of jobs, services, and on the basis and so on, on the basis of merit. But in a more, it's more general sense, I'd suggest there's a more general tension between the critical intelligence required of academics and the partisanship and conviction that politics calls for. And in the more specific gap between the tendency for the academic community to think of merit in objective terms, in terms of intellectual capacity, for example, whereas in politics, merit may be much more closely associated with finding people who agree with you, who show you loyalty and devotion, who pose no threat to you. I'm with Shakespeare and King Lear, you know, power needs a fool to speak truth to power, uh, but few politicians actually accept the need for such a fool or tolerate that kind of criticism. The fourth principle is integrity. Now, I'm not going to claim that academics have this and politicians don't, but the demands, I think, are very different. What integrity of intellectual judgment demands is not the same as what integrity as a politician involves. The latter is much more receptive to instrumental considerations, more fixed on goals, more strategic and tactical. It's also more demanding that it's not just a matter of intellectual consistency. Politicians are so much more open to the public gaze. They're so much more subject to numerous cross-pressures. People expect them to make promises and sometimes to keep them. They are, one might say, in the thick of it. And being so calls for a combination of intellectual and emotional judgment that is more taxing in character, more taxing of character, than being an academic. I think that's why more of them fail. Not because they're uniquely flawed people, Lord knows academia has some of those, but that any flaws they have will tend to be exposed. The fifth principle is accountability. You might not think it, but academics are pretty accountable. Intellectually, they're accountable for what they say to their peers and to their kind of community. For their performance and their personal conduct, they're accountable to their institutions. Politicians are also accountable. But where some academic accountability is about the substance and methods of research, the rest is really largely procedural stuff. Meeting agreed standards, following agreed norms and procedures. In contrast, a huge proportion of politicians' accountability is political and partisan. It distrusts their motives, casts doubt on their integrity, grubs around for dirt to spill on them, sustains them in the public eye, under public scrutiny, and so on. It does this in Westminster, in the press, in the media, in the 24-hour news round. This is not formal accountability and accountability to procedures, uh, and it's potentially subversive of following procedure. So the drip-drip reporting of on MPs' expenses effectively ended up derailing the institutions that the uh, Prime Minister had set up, the formal process he had set up to review and investigate the system. Uh, this is part of what it's like uh, to live in an open democracy, but it's not an unmixed blessing. So those are, I think, just five dimensions of difference between academia and politics, differences that relate to ethical conduct in public roles. Um, one penultimate thought, academia has been sheltered for many centuries, at least in part, from those kinds of political pressures. It's taken a long time to build up and sustain a kind of degree of independence. Though interestingly, historically, over and over again, that independence has been threatened. Um, and uh, with, particularly threatened by the politicization of the academy. 
those pressures, as I say, are far from new. Both Plato and Aristotle face them. And there's a nice line in a letter from Jonathan Swift to Charles Ford, complaining that as the world is now turned, no cloister is retired enough to keep the politics out. <laughs> Nevertheless, these differences, perhaps not as stark as Plato draws, but significant nonetheless, might lead us to think that thinking about politics, being a political theorist, might not necessarily equip one for being a thinker in politics. But that's an academic political theorist speaking, and I hand over to Mark to tell you what the reality is. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. Thank you for staying out in the sun for a few more minutes. Uh, it's great to be here. Mark set quite a challenge, I think, in thinking about the relationship between academia and politics, uh, and thinking about the ways in which people behave, uh, the ways in which people think, and the ways in which people speak and act in these two different domains. And all I want to do today, really, is to, is to give you a sketch of the experience I've had in the last year or so, uh, to try to heighten uh, this tension, but also to think about some of the similarities between these two ways of living. Uh, now, when I was young, uh, when I was 18, 19, uh, here at Oxford doing PPE, I, I always had an aspiration, a, a kind of ambition to go into politics. I'm from South Wales originally. I grew up in the miners' strike of the 1980s. I was heightenedly political. I arrived in Oxford. It was incredibly exciting uh, because all of these famous politicians came to visit uh, and we had arguments in the JCR and people would do protests in the quads and I just thought a life in politics is for me. Um, I graduated uh, and I suddenly discovered how hard going into politics actually is. Uh, both because it's such a closed world, people are invited in, if you like, to, to, to our political domain, uh, but also because it's unbelievably tiring. Um, people work incredibly hard as young politicians uh, and although I'd worked fairly hard as a, as a kind of young student here doing PPE, I, I wasn't quite ready for that. Um, so my best friend, as some of you know, my best friend at college was a, a man called Ed Miliband. Uh, and Ed was quite happy to go off and work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, such that I remember about a year after graduating, telephoning Ed. And um, this was the days before mobile phones, so you, I telephoned his home. Uh, the phone rang and the answer machine picked it up and there was this message which said, you know, this is Ed Miliband, I'm afraid I can't take your call right now, please try again later. And then there was a pause and it said, on the other hand, if this is Gordon Brown, then please try the following three numbers. <laughs> uh, and there was a, a list of phone numbers for Gordon to try. Uh, and that was the kind of commitment that you had to have in order to be able to break in. So I didn't do it. I went off and I did a defil uh, instead, and I began an academic career studying and thinking about politics rather than practicing it. Uh, and for about 20 years, I was doing that quite happily, occasionally engaging in public debate through letters to the press or, you know, appearing on the radio uh, or doing consultancy work with business, but never actually getting into the thick of actual political life until around about 18 months ago when the phone rang. I was in my office at Univ and the phone rang and it was the Institute for Public Policy Research saying, uh, essentially saying the left of the political spectrum in Britain is intellectually bereft, it's lost the election, it doesn't know what to do, we're trying to get academics back into politics to think about starting a new. Uh, and they said, would you like to come for three years and help that process, help us think about the way in which the left of the political spectrum might renew itself after the new Labour years. And it was a really exciting offer, which I was convinced my head of department would turn down. 
So I said, well, I'll ask the head of the department. And I went over to the department and I said, how about this? And he was happy enough to get rid of me for three years. Uh, so he said yes, and off to Westminster I went, and that's the, that's the kind of backstory. And that's where I've been ever since, trying to think about this process. Now, the topic today is the relationship between politics and academia, or the difference, if you like, between academia and politics. And so I really just want to say two things, one of which is my expectations, and one of which is what I discovered. Uh, and my expectations were quite negative, I think, going in. Uh, I was expecting it to be really very different indeed from the scholarly life, for many of the reasons that Mark has sketched out already, uh, but also just because the way we consume politics now through the media uh, casts a very negative light uh, on the political process. Um, so I didn't really know what the details would be like of exposure to, to politicians and to politics, uh, but I didn't have particularly high expectations of the day-to-day -day grind. But my initial sense of what was going on when I got there and started to have conversations with people who had been in politics all their lives were actually strikingly reassuring. Uh, and um, the three, three things which I initially picked up, I guess. The first is that there are remarkably good people in our public life, in our political life, on all sides of the political spectrum, Conservatives, Labour, Liberal Democrats, astonishing people who actually invest an enormous amount of their personal energy and commitment to the most mundane parts of, for example, their constituency business, or the most demanding parts of the legislative process, you know, drafting bills, criticising bills, taking evidence, sifting things through, talking to people from all different sides of the argument. I was blown away uh, by the quality and commitment of the people that I found, and I, hadn't, I must admit I hadn't expected that. Including amongst some of the people who have the worst reputations in the media, uh, who are seen as, you know, flippity gibbets or seen as unserious or seen as rhetorical, actually day to day making a kind of commitment to our public life, which went far beyond anything I'd expect. So that was my first thought. Wow, people are pretty decent in this business. The second thing which is kind of reassuring is the influence of Oxford PPE, uh, which has a PPE is you know, long in the tooth, was quite remarkable. I mean, the number of people who've come through this university who have experience of learning PPE here, thinking about the interconnections between politics, philosophy, and economics, and who still see themselves as, to some extent, engaged in a scholarly process, even though they live within the world of politics. So much so that if you go to a meeting in Westminster, and again, this is true on all sides of the political spectrum, and you sit down at the beginning of a meeting, rather than saying, what is the agenda today, people still say, what is today's essay question? <laughs> uh, and that's their reliving their tutorial experience at the, at, at the Westminster, in the Westminster experience. And the third thing which is kind of reassuring is that when they answer that question, what's today's essay question, it's very much still in the vein of an argument to be won. So people think of themselves in politics as crafting arguments in the same way that my students here at UNIF think of themselves as doing that when they write an essay. So rather than trying to pull the wool over people's eyes or coming up with a smart soundbite, which is kind of what I'd imagine most politicians would spend their time thinking, the politicians that I've been working with actually think about, no, there is an argument here to be won. So we have our views, we have our ideological commitments, we have our policy uh, commitments and dedications, but we recognise that this is an act of persuasion, that going out there into the country or giving a speech or writing an article 
is trying to persuade people by making an argument. In much the same way as I say that an essay is in an Oxford tutorial or as a lawyer does in a courtroom. And that was a very reassuring world for me to find myself in. So those are three kind of reassurances, if you like. Good people, decent people, working hard, drawing on their PPE experience, and always trying to think of themselves as developing arguments, coherent arguments that other people might be able to accept. So, in some sense, so familiar, so, so much like life is around here. But what are the contrasts? What are the ways in which it's different? What are the ways in which the world of politics is just different from the world of academia? And I think there are, there are five, uh, everything's coming in fives today, uh, there are five unbelievable constraints under which all politicians labour and which prevent them from acting in the world in the way that scholars or academics act in the world. So I just want to kind of sketch those five constraints that I've discovered politicians working under. Now the first, and the most distressing for an academic, is that nothing is read simply politics. By which I mean, if a politician gives a speech or writes an article, it's received by the audience in ways which you would never imagine if you'd written it as a scholar. Which is to say, people have either intentional or unintentional drive to misinterpret. So if you say anything, you make a contribution to a political debate, then both friends and enemies alike get in there and start ripping your text apart and making it say things that you didn't ever imagine it would be taken as saying. Now, if you can imagine the constraint that places on you every time you write or say something, you're constantly anxious about misinterpretation, which drives people to what I would call a kind of safe banality. Better to say not very much, because that can't be misinterpreted very much, than to be bold and say a lot, knowing that people will constantly try to misinterpret what you say. And I see this all the time. Politicians give a speech, they've been less than normally cautious, and the next three or four days they're bombarded with intentional or unintentional misinterpretations. Uh, and I discovered this myself. I did a show on Radio 4 just very soon after being in this business, uh, and I said something about the NHS and the shift from acute care to long-term care, and the next day it was, you know, Labour advisor says close down hospitals. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, I, I didn't say that, you know. Uh, but before you know it, that's how the story's gone and it rolls. So that's the first thing you, you realise, is in politics nothing is read simply. The second thing you realise is that when those misinterpretations go out there, the first people who turn on you are your own side. So politics is a game of tribes, or what we call parties. And you tend to think from the outside that the party is pretty much on the side of themselves. You know, they're, they'll look after each other's back. Uh, and I tell you, the opposite is the case. Yeah. People are much, much more anxious about their own side than they are about the other side. And that's for a simple reason, that people from the other side generally don't read or watch what your side puts out. So, the Labour leader gives a speech, who listens? Members and supporters of the Labour Party. Occasionally, if you're lucky, floating voters. Very unoccasionally, died in the wall Conservatives. So your first instinct as a politician is to think, what I say is going to be misinterpreted, and it's going to be misinterpreted by my own friends. And keeping them on side is absolutely crucial because I can't do anything without them. 
So the first pressure makes you be a little bit safe, cautious, banal. The second makes you talk always to your own people first. So it ended up being endlessly reassuring to your own side. And that's a constraint in itself. That's the second constraint. The third constraint, though, goes outside of the party and takes you to the public. That's the rest of us. The public are absolutely fascinating, which I now realise, again, not having ever thought about this before. The public has very set views about its politicians. Yeah, it, it's like, I mean, this is another kind of, when you're at college, uh, you see people in different groups. So I don't remember this. You know, like there's the rowing people, and there's the hard-working people, and there's the people who go to the union. And you get stereotyped views very quickly about the people who are in those groups. And the public is exactly like that with regards to its politicians. So it has very set views about particular people. And what that means is the same text, or the same speech, can be given by two different people, two different politicians, and the public will respond completely differently. So the content of what you say turns out to matter much less than who you are when you're saying it. And we know this because we do focus grouping. You give different politicians the same speech and then play it to different members of the public. Sometimes they'll love it, sometimes they'll hate it. Independent of the content, it's because the person who delivers it. We've all followed the Boris Johnson phenomenon in the last few weeks. Anything Boris says, David Cameron could say, and I can tell you the public would respond completely differently. Uh, sometimes the public get a set view of the nature of the person delivering the message. And that makes it very, very difficult, I think, to be a politician. So that's my third constraint. Fourth constraint. So you're, first of all, you're worried that people will misinterpret you. Then you're worried about your own party. Then you're worried that the public have made their mind up about you already, so it doesn't really matter what you say. The fourth constraint is the press. Now, politicians moan about the media all the time. Of course they do. It's a stop and trade. But I didn't realise until going into politics just how close-knit the media themselves are or journalists themselves are. So I had a very naive conception that News International was a kind of right-wing leading part of the press, so the Sun and the Times, uh, the Mirror Group were a kind of left-wing you know, part of the press, so the Daily Mirror, the Guardian was a left-wing intellectual paper, Telegraph a uh, right-wing intellectual paper. And of course those things are generally true. But if you go to the party conferences, Liberal Democrat conference, Labour conference, Conservative conference, as I did last year for the first time, you see that the media don't act as individual units. They often move as a pack. Because they're extraordinarily anxious about being exposed for making mistakes. Yeah. So if I write an article as a political correspondent of any of the major newspapers, and I say, I don't know, Jeremy Hunt is the greatest politician of his generation, and then another newspaper runs a different story. Jeremy Hunt is a complete idiot and his career will crash and burn instantly. Then there's a rivalry set up and one of us will be exposed for being wrong. Now the media doesn't like that. Journalists don't like exposure. So what they tend to do is settle on an opinion across the piece and then display that as a shared opinion. So despite these ideological differences, journalists move as in a kind of group thing. And at the party conference, you'll see them working together to cast judgments on individual speeches by individual politicians. So there's no coincidence if you put on Channel 4 News and the BBC News, they'll both say a speech was either a triumph or a disaster. 
Not because they've reached an independent judgment, but because they have a settled view amongst them as a group. Yeah. And that, I didn't, I, I must say, I, I didn't know this phenomenon, but you can imagine what that does to a politician, because it doesn't mean you just have to convince one journalist, you've got to convince the whole lot, because the whole lot will generally move as a group. So you watch, during the conference season just coming up, watch the journalists reviewing the speeches of leading politicians, and see how often their opinions are settled, i.e. they agree across the piece, and uh, that won't have happened by chance. So that's the fourth constraint. Fifth constraint, my final constraint. Nothing's read simply, it's always misinterpreted. That's the first. Your party are the people that you don't have your back, they're at your back, that's the second. The public have preconceptions, that's the third. And journalists work in packs, that's the fourth. These are horrible constraints. I think the fifth constraint is psychological, which is that being a politician takes an enormous emotional toll which is for the obvious reason that you are being judged, just as Mark said, every day by almost everybody. It's a constant process, as it should in a democracy, it's a constant process of people evaluating your performance. Now, in some ways that's terrifically exciting, in other ways that's great for accountability, but from a psychological perspective, the emotional, I can't think of a better word than toll, of living like that, again, draws you towards a safety-first approach. If you can imagine someone every day judging you, criticizing you, and not just your wife or husband, you know, but every, the whole public making that effective judgment all the time, then the instinct that you have in order to protect your own emotional well-being is again to play safe. Yeah. Stepping out, being brave, you can do that once in a while, but if you do that every day, you're constantly at the mercy of the public, if you like. It's a very, very difficult way to live. So, I think those five constraints mean that, whilst in a tutorial here at Oxford, my students will range boldly from left to right. Yeah, they'll make strong arguments, they'll state their opinion, they'll try and have a go at each other. That's what academic life is like, hopefully, most of the time vibrant and discursive. It's extraordinarily difficult to be like that in politics because of all these constraints which push you towards safety, caution, banality, the centre ground. Not because that's what politicians want to be like, not because they don't believe in anything anymore, just because we've set up the structure and the system which makes it extraordinarily difficult to step out of those bounds. You're worried about people misinterpreting you. You're worried about your own party. You're worried about public preconceptions. You're worried about the press moving as a pack. You're worried about your own emotional well-being if you take any risks. You can imagine that the instinct then is always to play safe. Okay, so that's what I've learned in, in politics. And, uh, and that, I think, makes a lot of sense of what we see when we look at our politicians today. Uh, this constant sense people have that the arguments aren't as vibrant as they should be, that people aren't speaking boldly enough, that truth isn't being declared, that change isn't coming. My sense is that that's not as a result of the politicians themselves, but as a result of these constraints that they labour under. So my very final thought for you guys today is to say, all right, well, if it's so hard, is it worth it? Why live a life like that if you're constantly constrained in those ways? 
And I guess the other thing I want to say there, and it comes back to some of the comments Mark was making, the one thing I, I will always take away, and I'll always say to people about politics after this experience I've been lucky enough to have, is that most politicians, not all, but most politicians, have a remarkably refreshing sense of the possibilities and limitations of the vocation they pursue. So although they can come across on the TV often as insufferable, the vast majority of politicians on a daily basis know the limitations of democratic politics. They know how constrained it is. They know how difficult it is. They know how disappointed people are in them. And they do want to do what they can despite those limitations. Now that, I think, makes politicians, not all of them of course, but many politicians, actually rather pleasant to be with. Because they have a surprising lack of self-satisfaction. They labour in a vocation that they know is constrained. They know that they will constantly disappoint. And they don't think that's because they aren't trying hard enough. They think that's because it's the nature of the profession that they pursue. So sometimes when you come to, if you come back to your old college and you go to high table dinner and you sit next to, you know, a, a noble professor, uh, who will have lots of exciting ideas to pursue, you'll think, okay, I learn a lot from sitting next to these people because they have this fantastic life as a scholar, as an academic, as a pursuer of truth. But they might have one other characteristic too, which is a slight tendency to smugness. And a slight tendency to think that they are pursuing a nobler profession, a nobler life than other people out there. I tell you, you don't get that in politics. And you don't get it for a very simple reason, which is that politicians know that the practice of being a democratic representative in a country like ours today is necessarily difficult and constrained, but nonetheless worth trying anyway. Thank you very much.